My guest for today is the owner and CEO of Fireboy Entertainment, a production company specializing in producing and developing feature films, TV shows, animation, and video games. They have worked in visual effects, video game production, toy development, locations, writing, directing, booming, and producing. Currently developing content to be distributed on multiple streaming platforms. Brian Fire. Hello. Welcome to the show, Brian. Good to be here, man. So you grew up in Pasadena? Uh, Altadena, actually. Altadena in, in the uh, 70s? In the 70s, yeah. What was it like growing up during that period of time? It was kind of like the Brady Bunch. You know, um, we were one of probably like maybe 10 or 15 black families in Altadena. Um, it was a really fun time, you know, for kids. And uh, you could go out and play all day and you had to be indoors before the, those lights, <laughs> before those night lights came out. Uh, but it was a really, really fun time. It's a fun time for me. Were you a popular kid growing up? Um, that would probably be a 50-50. I was, I was a sick kid, so hmm. I, didn't, I didn't really get into the sports and all of that stuff until I got uh, into high school. But when I was little, I had asthma, and um, I used to spend a lot of time in the house reading and, and um, playing by myself. And hmm. I think the reading is how I ended up doing so well with um, uh, entertainment, you know, you think your, your non-blessing isn't a blessing until you realize it's actually a blessing. So spending a lot of time in the house, reading that, that family Britannica front to back actually paid off for me. Hmm. Turning lemons into lemonade. Yes, sir. What was your favorite game to play as a child growing up or some of your favorite games? Uh, when I learned how to swim, Marco Polo. That yeah. Was yeah. Because I was the kid who took so long to learn how to swim. Uh, when I finally did get used to the family pool, I never wanted to get out. So, <laughs> uh, What were your uh, best subjects in school? Always writing and art. Uh, I was uh, an artist before I started doing anything else in film. Yeah, and I was always writing creative stories. I had a good vocabulary and liked to put it on the page. Did you have a favorite teacher? I did. Um, Charles Maloof. Charles Maloof in high school because he he prepared most of the black and Latino kids for the real world. You know, and, uh, and what I did as growing up, I would tell my kids some of his same quotes that ended up really not just being quotes. They were like life lessons. Um, like he would tell us, um, you have to keep in mind, we're teenagers. He would tell us, you get your diploma and he would wave it. I got my diploma world, here I come. And then he would tell us the diploma is nothing. <laughs> he says, uh, it's just the start, you know, of you fulfilling your responsibilities. And he said, what are you gonna do about the millions of other people just like yourself who have a diploma that you're gonna have to compete with to get a job? And um, his words didn't resonate till I went to get my very first job as a young adult. And uh, I could feel the pressure um, of actually competing with a lot of people and realizing, wow, I may not get this job because there's a lot of other people who seemed a little bit more polished, um, who are a little older, uh, who seem to have a lot more experience. And then how do you get over that problem of not having any experience? So um, Chuck, Charles, Chuck, he's, he's uh, my guy. He's, and he's fortunately he's still living. Hmm. And you're still in contact with him? Yes, he is an avid. I used to go to John Muir High School, and Chuck is like one of those guys with this team spirit from another planet. He, every year, sick or well, he attends the games. Uh, everybody knows him. All the young men know him well because he always, you know, would give us that positive backbone, and he was always a great mentor. And uh, now I'm really glad to say my son knows him, too, because I would tell my son stories about this man. And then, and he was just like, I can't believe, you know, your kid is following me now. So it's pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Um, what's your most embarrassing childhood memory? Oh gosh, passing out, passing <laughs> out, uh, playing little league. <laughs> I had gone a little bit too far and was having an asthma attack. Oh, I, I was thinking passing out like college graduate, uh, high school graduation and you had a little too much. <laughs> Oh no, it was we were playing baseball 
and um, I had done a little bit too much. And I determined that day I was going to actually figure out how to get through the asthma attack and just keep playing without my friends realizing, you know, that I was really having an issue. And the next thing I know, I blacked out mm. and uh, woke up in the house. And then we had to go to the hospital and get the little shot and everything. Mm. Uh, that was the most embarrassing because when you're a little boy, you want to just play with other boys and, and, you know, we play forever. Yeah. Well, hopefully they didn't give you too much of a hard time on that. I mean, that was certainly something beyond your control. Uh, hopefully your, your schoolmates had some, had some empathy. Uh, you know how kids are. <laughs> kids are brutal, man. <laughs> if you have a problem in the seventies with kids, uh, they'll talk about it and, and kid around about it till you don't really have a problem with it anymore. So uh, fortunately, I had a lot of friends who who kind of joked about it, but they didn't try to humiliate me, and no. uh, and it helped me build a little bit of character, you know, a little bit of backbone. Yeah, I can't even imagine though uh, that having to be a worry. I mean, you know, I'm I'm very lucky that I've never really had to deal with issues like that. But but people that grow up with those kind of issues uh, are are quite courageous in in my in my view. I mean, you just keep doing what you need to do to keep yourself moving forward. Did you have any uh, favorite toys as you were a child growing up? Yeah, I did. I was, I was a kid who was into action figures. I used to make them at home. My dad had a workshop and uh, my brother gave me one of his GI Joes and um, GI Joe was life-changing hmm. and GI Joe could go anywhere. You know, they had all these different dioramas that he would come with and, and they had, different race Joes, so any guy could be a Joe. And for a young boy, um, looking at G.I. Joe and realizing he's a guy that can just go anywhere in the world, um, it kind of coordinated with me sitting around at the house, you know, because I wasn't doing a lot of athletics, reading all day and then reading about World War One and World War II. Um, I would relive some of that stuff in my bedroom. I'd tear the yard up because um, I could. We had a huge backyard and I would get the water holes and and just do all these things. So GI Joe was a big part of my life growing up. It was mm -hmm. kind of crazy, but it worked, you know, it worked for me. I was a big GI Joe fan myself as well as major Matt Nelson, but I'm oh, a I had major Matt Nelson. Oh, so you know major Matt Nelson. <laughs> oh yeah. Action Jackson would do it. You remember action Jackson? He yeah. Was, yeah, absolutely. It was kind of like GI Joe, but he was a four and three quarter inch character and he, and he had the same thing. He had the jungle kit, the Jeep and, and, um, you know, you don't realize it, but I was directing and creating stories with those characters because when I would prepare, I would go in the bathroom and then I would talk about what I was going to do with the characters that day. And sometimes my mom would walk past the bathroom and I'm rehearsing multiple characters' voices. Hmm. All right, Major Matt Mason, we're sending you on this mission. <laughs> I can handle it. And I'm sitting in the bathroom doing all this. And, and, and you know, kids, when they're daydreaming, and having fun, they never think to look over their shoulder to see if anyone's looking. And um, I remember my mom telling me, she said, you had a really good afternoon, Major Matt Mason and all these guys. I was like, oh man, <laughs> wow. I had to, had to kind of keep my volume down when I was doing all of my, my gameplay. Yeah, that's but, funny. Uh, the action figures were great, man. Uh, what kind of uh, things did you enjoy doing with your friends when you were growing up? Well, in my neighborhood, I was the only one that had a pool. So all my buddies would come over and um, we would swim. Uh, we would play Marco Polo. And I kid you not, it was the only place that we can stay outdoors even after the lights, when street lights went out, we couldn't play at the park or being, we had to be home. But if you're at my house, you could go swimming. Uh, my mom would probably barbecue some food if I had a lot of friends over. And then we were also the first family in our block to get the Magnavox Pong game, hmm. which was a big video game in the 70s. And, and um, so we played video games together. And, and some of my buddies, we played video games together like right into our 30s. We get together and, and have sports weekend and have, have our uh, refreshments. And, um, and we still have that same kind of camaraderie today, except it's like going out to play pool or, or sitting at someone's house and, and having food and cocktails. Huh. Uh, were your, uh, what did your parents do for a living? Well, my father's deceased, but um, when he wasn't, when he, while he was living, he was, he was uh, to kids in my neighborhood, my dad was like a superhero. 
he was um, in the Air Force. And we got out of the Air Force. He was the guy who could literally, I was thought my dad could do everything. I mean, he had built houses. He had sold cars. He did real estate. Um, and his final job uh, that he ended up retiring from was he was a postal carrier. And uh, he did that for like 50 years. And it just seemed like um, there was nothing my dad couldn't do, you know, because growing up back then, every dad on my street and the streets that were all around me, um, they were all like career dads who had stuff to do. They were home on Sundays. They were home watering their lawns. And it was kind of cool watching my dad be in that whole parade. Mm. And my favorite part was the other dads coming over wanting to use his tools or wanted to come and watch the football games with my dad. My mom wouldn't let him. <laughs> uh, uh, why, why wouldn't your mom let him? She was jealous. My mom was jealous of anyone who wanted to hang out with my dad. So he couldn't have he couldn't have buddies come over all the time. It was kind of frustrating, you know, because I know it was like dads want to hang out and play, too. And they would come and knock on our door. And it was like, uh, is, is your mom here? And I was going, yeah, she's here. And they're like, oh, man, I look outside and there's like two or three more dads with them. They're like, oh, we were coming to hang out with Leo. And I said, well, good luck. Huh. But, um, yeah, my dad was really, really cool. Man. Your dad being so handy, I'm surprised he didn't uh, build some kind of man cave somewhere on the property, you know. Where he, 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 oh, he did. He did. That's what he had. A, he had this workshop with everything in it. He had grinders, lathes. Um, if a dad needed to do something, he'd come over and cut it at my dad's house in his little workshop. And, and they would come over for advice. And um, he was he was really a good role model um, for me growing up because um he was balanced, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. um, my dad always had good answers for stuff mm -hmm. um, and he was compassionate. Mm -hmm. uh, one, of, one of the stories I tell my son was the time I was at Home Depot with my father and he was getting some things to make some upgrades on the house and we're in the checkout line and there was a woman with like these four boys and she was in distress, you know, she's, she had been crying and then uh, she's going through it and she's just talking to her sons. And it turned out that um, she had just gone through a breakup with their, the kid's father. And um, it was a pretty bad situation and they didn't have a bed. And so this is the kind of guy my dad was. He listened to her story and he was already figuring out in his head how he's going to help her. So when she left, my dad got her number. And we went right back in Home Depot and, and started getting the materials because he decided to build her a four bunk bed for the boys. Hmm. And um, here we are, man. I thought we were going home and I thought I was going to have dinner. I said, here I'm with my dad helping build this bed. And he figured the calculations out in his head while he was in the line. He had a little notepad with him whenever he was doing work and he, he wrote it out. And then he tells me when we're leaving, I'm like, what is all this for? And he goes, we're getting ready to build a four bunk bed for that lady. We're going to help her. And I was like, oh, man. And so I got excited. I was like, oh, cool. You know, so uh, when we got home, he got the fifth degree from my mom. You're like, what are you guys doing? And he says, I was helping someone. And then she asked me, she's like, what were you guys doing? I said, dad built a four bunk bed for this lady with all these with these sons. And so everybody in the house is just like, wow, that that was pretty awesome. So that that's the kind of guy that he was. He's just a good dude. That's pretty cool. So he he's where you got, because you're pretty handy yourself. So he's the one that taught you how to build things then. A lot of things. I used to watch them. And, yeah. uh, and every, did you ever see that science kit the little boys had? And then they had that little erector set. Yeah. yeah. I had to have two of each of those because you run out of materials. <laughs> <laughs> and your mom, was she a housewife or did she work as well? She was a housewife and she uh, ended up working like in the early 80s. She worked for a little while. And then she ended up staying a housewife because she had had some injuries. Yeah. She had an injury on the job. And well, um, back then, you you could have one working parent. And we did. Be able to take care of the family. Whereas these days, it seems, you know, it's different. It's You can't have just, I mean, the average person can't do it alone if you want a family. Both people yeah. have to work. And then oh, man, it's hard. It's hard. It really is. And uh, I, I take my hat off to my parents because I have three kids. And um, I usually don't think about what it costs me to keep it going because I'm, my head is so in the game. I just do, you know, watching my dad, if he had to have two or three jobs to get mm -hmm. it done, he did it. And mm -hmm. in my case, is the same thing. I never want my kids to feel like um, they're missing something or something's wrong. So you just go out 
and you do what needs to be done. And, and I've been in the same shoes as my dad. And he was, he used to actually really be happy about that because hmm. he's like, what are you doing now? And I go, I said, I'm working here and I'm doing this. And he'd be smiling and let's have a cold beer. And I'm just thinking to myself, I was like, gosh, I got to find a way to make even more money. I was like, this is wild, but hmm. I'm getting it done. You know? And I, I felt like my dad, when, when that was happening in my life, when I had the multiple jobs, but LA's expensive. Um, it's always been a little bit pricey, but nowadays it's really, really, really ridiculous. Cool. Ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I don't know how anyone does it. <laughs> I'm know. still baffled. Uh, uh, were your parents supportive of your ambitions to have a career in the entertainment field? Not in the beginning. Um, my dad, my dad too was an artist. I mean, I was painting and sculpting and doing all this stuff and, and had the supplies to pull it off. And then when I finished uh, high school, my dad was kind of like, what are you going to do? You know, and, and um, I had always told them I was going to be a great artist, you know, or a dancer. And um, my dad would always tell me, and he would joke, like, you know, artists and dancers don't make any money, you know, and, and they can't support their families. And so I always Generally had, speaking, he's probably correct. <laughs> yeah, it was, well, it, it turned out to be pretty much true, especially with the dancing, because my, my foray into dancing didn't last that long. And what was it? The Har the Harlem Group. Wait, what was you went, worked with a pretty reputable dance company? Yeah, it's it's a famous. I got into a dance group called the Dance Theater of Harlem with Arthur Mitchell, in '86. Uh, and um, my dad had a hard time with me wearing tights because I did <laughs> jazz, ballet, tap, and contemporary, and um, I would just wear the tights the whole time, you know, because you've got a class to go to, mm -hmm. and you don't want to keep changing your gear. So I would just wear the tights sometimes. And when I was going to New York and my dad realized what a big deal it was, you know, he just, he just congratulated me. He goes, well, this is your first life milestone. I'd never been anywhere. I'd never been outside of California. And here I am flying to New York um, for some really, really cool event. I had no idea what was waiting for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, New York was very different from LA. The training in ballet was very different from LA. They damn near killed me in New York, but, um, I was a better man because of it. You know, when you're when you're exposed to a very high level of training, um, you'd be amazed with how your body responds to it. Yeah. So that was around '86, you said. '86, yeah. Uh, but you first wasn't acting. Your first uh, foray entertainment. How old were you when you when you first got into acting? And and how what was the impetus for that? I had a friend named Jan Crawford who was um, he was the voice of Bucky on Fat Albert. And uh, Altadena has a lot of actors. Jan, doesn't he live out in Altadena too? Yeah. Yeah, I know Jan. He lived, he lived right up the street from me. And, uh, and, and so we would all go to the uh, park and hang out and play basketball. And I would play with them until I couldn't play anymore. And I was always kidding with Jan. And so Jan always thought I was pretty witty. And he was the guy that introduced me to my first agent, um, Estelle Hertzberg, a 20th century artist. And at the time, that agency was number seven, and they only had a few black actors, you know. And so I, I met Estelle, I auditioned for, I read for, I did well, and she signed me. And it was kind of crazy. It was like one minute I'm doing these other things. Now I'm signed to this, this agent and going on calls for stuff. And along the journey, working with her and, and going out for calls, uh, she introduced me to Harry Gold and Associates, which was at that time, the number very well one, known, yeah. Yeah, they're very, they were the number one commercial agent. And when I was with Harry Gold, there was only like three or four black actors with him. So I got, I was out on a lot of calls, you know, I was getting a lot of, of um, I got a lot of work out of him too. And um, I did that for a while. And people always ask me, oh my God, you know, Christoph St. John was with um, Harry Gold. And I would see him every year at the Christmas parties. And he ended up being a pretty big name in soap operas. So people mm -hmm. go, oh, Christoph did really well in soap operas. Why didn't you get in that? I said, well, I, he ended up doing well in it. That was his avenue. And he kind of pretty much stuck through that all through his career. Mm -hmm. when, when I got into acting, I wanted to be like the hero. You know, I wanted to play those kinds of roles. And unfortunately, they never had anything like that. You know, mm -hmm. I, was, I was auditioning for kids who were in the gang or... Uh, kids who were stealing or kids. I was always in, 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 um, in a lineup with guys that I'd seen a million times before. And it was pretty much the same stuff, sports, bad kids, gang members. And it just kind of crushed my daydream. Cause remember I'm the kid who grew up 
playing with action figures and being the hero and wanting to tell some really cool stories. And, um, and that's when I realized that, wow, I said, black actors don't really get a lot of diversity in the, in the characters that they get to play. Mm. And um, after a while, I just decided I wanted to get involved on another level uh, behind the scenes and training with, uh, I guess at this point, what I can say is I've had some really amazing mentors in my life because my mentors were the ones that set, helped me set my path and my trajectory because uh, when I started training with Kent Bateman, who is Jason Bateman's dad, um, he would talk about his career, you know, because he was a writer and a director. Hmm. And, um, and he would talk about what he's doing with his kids. And, and I thought he did a fabulous job with um, Jason Bateman and his sister. Mm-hmm. And I was in an acting class with them. I was actually always in acting classes with working actors. So I had a chance to, to spend time with them, see how the machine works, see how they work when they're getting ready to do scenes with us. And, um, and I realized, I said, it seemed like there was more creativity writing and directing. And, um, and I think I kind of fell right into it because I was telling one of my uh, acting coaches, I said, you know, I said, I think this year I'm going to try something different. And uh, I started taking uh, filmmaking classes in Pasadena. And then I ended up getting another mentor. Um, and then he would watch movies with me and, and talk about the real heavy stuff when you're talking about developing a story, developing a character. And then that was pretty much it. I knew I was like, oh man, it's like when I was a child, you know, sitting down reading the encyclopedia and sharing things with people who would want to listen um, when you're telling stories, you're doing the same thing. You're telling people's story, and hopefully it's enthralling enough for them to want to sit and listen to it, and then one day maybe sit and watch you know, what you put up on the screen. So I think I was being groomed without realizing it to, mm-hmm. to work in um, uh, content creation. Interesting. Do you think it's necessary to have formal training, uh, formal acting training to be a professional actor? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, people go, why'd you have so many acting coaches? <laughs> you know, it was so cool. I've had some pretty outrageous acting coaches and all of them were very strong. Um, they weren't like somebody who was in theater in college and then they go, I'm going to teach an acting class. You know, Brooke Bundy, she was... Um, Brooke she was, Bundy, yeah. I think I... Yeah, her, her daughter is Tiffany Helms. Yes. Brooke, that yeah, was, I went that to school like, with her daughter. Yeah, that was like my second mom, man. And she, yeah, she's great, Brooke. Oh, I wonder what she's up to these days. She's incredible. She's in New York. And um, I think she just did something a little while ago. But she was an amazing uh, teacher because she was like the first, she was my first acting coach that really challenged me. Hmm. You know, I had a knack for comedy and creative stuff. And what she would do is she would make me do these monologues. And um, the monologues would make you bare your soul to people that you don't know. And at that time in my life, I, um, I had a little bit of a fear of being in front of a lot of people sometimes. And, and, um, and I had to overcome that fear. And what was so nice about her was she was able to look into me and realize, says, I'm going to give you some tools that are not just going to help you with your acting, being able to take any role and dissect it and understand where you need to be emotionally because you'll be tapping into all those emotions when you're doing dialogues. And if you're being true to yourself, you'll feel where the emotional shift should happen. And um, I remember leaving her class and um, engaging with people more than I normally would. And uh, sometimes it would be sitting in a parking lot, having a discussion with someone. And before that class, I would never do anything like that. Even in school, you know, I would, I uh, overcame certain issues I would have with being put in front of the class to talk about things. And um, so she helped me, not just with my acting, but with being a young man and um, being stronger, articulating with, with people. And uh, man, she was, she was incredible. It was just, just so many great talents. And she trained us in a very famous school. There was a school in Hollywood called PAC Cooperative. And there were a lot of known actors that were training there. And it lasted a long time. It was a, it was a very famous school. I was lucky to get into it. And um, I, I picked up my tools at the PAC. It was pretty amazing. 
Well, Brooke is a pretty amazing woman, lovely, both on the inside and outside. I have nothing but good memories about her. I'm certainly going to uh, get more into your content creating, but I'm curious as to, and maybe because you're not so much pursuing it now, or, you know, maybe you are plugged in enough to still comment, but what are some of the, the changes in the acting industry that you've noticed happening over the many years that you've been in and in and around the entertainment business? Oh, man. Um, well, as the person that's creating content, I know that um, in the 90s, when you're when you're packaging something that you're you're planning on producing and, and putting out, um it was a lot more difficult to get on the road to getting your film going and uh, getting in front of producers. Now there's so many streamers, there's so many outlets for content creators. You can create a list and um, it becomes a numbers game. You know, one of these companies is gonna give you a shot at doing your show because um, content is king. And I hear it and uh, some of the projects we have, we, we have a lot of meaning. There's a lot of interest in what we're doing. And it wasn't like that in the 90s, man. It was, it was, it was a, a major chore to get meetings together. And if you're Black, unfortunately, I, I remember a lot of times when I was out pitching a show, I mean, we had an action series um, with a Black character who was a mystical samurai. And um, the, the way I got into production was a producer happened to be in Kinko's with us. He was standing behind us. He saw the drawings of the characters and he heard us preparing for our pitch meeting. We're in the, we're in the line talking about our pitch meeting and he became very interested in what we we're talking about. So he asked me to pitch him the uh, script. He says, pitch, pitch me the thing you guys are talking about. So I pitched it to him and he didn't really react right away. He turned around from us and then he had called his wife. Now, his wife is his producing partner, and, um, and he asked me, he goes, you know, Brian, he goes, would you be willing to come to my house and pitch that story to my partner? And I said, sure. You know, back then, I was fearless because of Brooke. Uh, I said, sure. You know, he turned it on right there in the line, a great pitch, and it was strong enough to get producer Rick Nathanson to go, man, he says, these, these guys have something. And I didn't get nervous until I was pulling up to his house, which was like a mansion. I pulled up to us and I'm like, oh, my God, you know this is like serious and we, we pull into the gate and, and we go in and then it turned out his partner was his wife. And then I pitched her, she loved it. And uh, long story short, what happened was um, he basically sat and we talked and we had tea and cookies and um, he decided that he just really liked me as a person and wanted to start a production team. So that's what happened. He, he kind of pulled all the strings. He just told me, he says, I think you should be writing and directing your own material. At the time, I was young and, and kind of handsome, and his, his wife thought I should be acting. So I said, no, 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 I don't want to go back and act. I said, I want, to, I want to direct and work with actors, and I want to write these stories that are in my head. And, um, and that's what we started. You know, hmm. He's the guy that, that was behind me getting the comic book deals and, and getting a really good, I was kind of tossed into producing and getting behind the scenes and pitching and attaching talent, you know, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't met him because I didn't know how to do it before. And um, taking a class and producing doesn't teach you about the intangibles of life and, and how to nuance and, and make things happen when there's nothing there. There's, there's no apparatus to help you get an actor to agree to be in something you're doing or to get a director to go, yeah, you know what? I want to, I'd like to look at what you're doing and I'm interested in working with you. So it's gotten even easier to do that now. Like I've been able to get people attached just from going to coffee shops or popular lounges. If I see them, um, I talk to them and it's amazing what can happen now. And um, that was a little bit more of a process back then because I know actors really wanted their agents to get involved before they would agree to attach themselves to your film project. And now actors are a little bit more open to it because they, they look at what they're getting into and go, you know what, this is a good project. I'm, I'm gonna roll with you on this. You know, you just have to make sure to word the contract in a way that's comfortable for the actor, for the talent and for their agency and anyone else, you know, make the words friendly uh, so that they don't think that if things don't go well, they'll end up being sued. Um, and in my case, I had something not go well because of one of the actors I didn't sue him. It was just a learning platform. You know, I was just like, oh God, you know, this guy kind of crashed a project 
once you attach someone, you can't unattach them. That's, that's what I learned later. Hmm. And then it cost me a deal, but it taught me something, you know, it's like, you have to really be careful about who you attach to what you're doing. Um, and they have to be, they have to be talent that's worthy enough at the time to get a studio to go, okay, he's got so-and-so attached. We, we love the script. Um, let's take it to the next level. So in a lot of ways, it's gotten easier. And um, I see a lot of Black actors doing more parts, you know, different types of parts. That was the thing I really wanted to, to get to. Because when you're playing with G.I. Joe, you can be anybody. You can be <laughs> anywhere, man. And, and um, that's been my life. I've been able to travel. You know, the dancing took me on the road. Uh, when I was producing, sometimes I'd have to get in the car and go to Vegas or go to Florida or go to New York to meet investors. And it was just really fun dealing with all these different people. And uh, it was like being in a big movie, you know, you're going out and and um, you're not really sure what's going to be on the other side, but you're ready for it, you know. Well, so it I sounds like it. you've come quite a long way from, you know, kind of being afraid of talking to people after class to being able to pitch to producers and, wow. and stars and stuff. Uh, how did you get involved in special effects? Oh, cool. Well, the that partnership I told you about, what I noticed, you know how people have a perception of you when you step in a room. They've kind of almost already sized you up. I learned that uh, I was pitching one studio, and it was one of my favorite studios because they had some movies that I really liked. And um, they kind of broke my heart because they had known about me and my writing partner for a while. They knew that that meeting was coming. And what happened was, while we're pitching the story, they became really obsessed with how I figured the budget and, and some of the visual effects and all these other things. I said, I'm a writer. I said, you know, the director and producers, they handle all that. My job is to tell the story. Their job is to put it on the screen. I have to tell a compelling story. And the reason I'm here is because I've constructed some great characters, great plots, and created a great vehicle that you guys are interested in turning into a film. And here I find myself in a technical meeting and I wasn't prepared to have it. And it was actually kind of frustrating because I felt like this particular person was just trying to find an area that it wasn't strong in. And he just beat me over the head with it. And my attorney and my business partner didn't say anything. So they watched me get beat up for like a two hour pitch meeting. And uh, I was just kind of baffled. So I get to my car and I'm sitting in the car going, what the heck just happened? You know, I'm, I'm so used to people being excited when we're pitching and the, the ones that you really went over help you pitch because they're asking you about things that they remember from the pitch that, that they're attracted to and they want to know more. And I would, I would be dying to tell them more, but this particular producer was just like, he just wanted to kind of beat us up. And he ended that pitch meeting with the world's not ready to see a black character with a sword. Hmm. Needless to say, Blade came out two years after that pitch meeting. And um, I usually use that, that whole situation when I'm pitching and, and, and lecturing youngsters who want to get into entertainment. Mm -hmm. But that was the meeting that made me decide that I didn't want to be a director who could just work with actors. You know, I was thinking, I said, this guy asked me about visual effects and, and all this stuff on the road. And so I said, you know what, let me learn something about visual effects. And it turned out to be a blessing because when you understand the needs in your scenes, not just with your talent, I got the talent down because um, I, I know what an actor's thinking. I know what to give them to make sure they get through their scenes and through the emotional ride. But the technical stuff, um, knowing how to do visual effects helps me when I'm writing. So when, when people engage with me, um, I always tell them, I said, you know, I don't write anything you can't shoot. I understand how to shoot it. I've taken the classes. I have a couple of friends that are incredible DPs and, and times that we've worked together. It's been like a little boys club. You know, you're having fun because I understand what you're going to do with this scene. And, um, and if I've had a chance to see the script, I'll go, this is actually really going to work. So I got into visual effects in the early 2000s. I was dabbling in it before that, but I literally threw myself into it. Um, and visual effects is hard to get into. It's not, it's harder than acting to get into because it was, uh, it's like a, it's like a private club. Are there many African-Americans in that club? I was going to say that next. I was the first African-American male in Bill Mason's studio. And what was so funny 
was it almost didn't even happen, you know, because I told my wife, I said, look, I said, I'm going to take a chance. And she's like, why aren't you out pitching the film? And I said, I'm going to take a chance. I said, I'm going to spend this year getting this visual effects stuff under my chops. I said, I don't want to ever be in a meeting where somebody is talking to me about something I don't know about that has to deal with film. I didn't like it. Um, it hurt me personally because, I'm, I'm, you know, film is supposed to be a creative medium. And then I have someone who's not being creative, who's not creative, beating me up with something I didn't know. So here I am in Hollywood, standing in the parking lot to flash Filmworks. And I knew that every year they had like a uh, internship. It was a famous internship, but they don't advertise anywhere. Uh, I heard someone talk about it and here I am, I showed up. And when I got there, they didn't want me to get in. They just turned me away. You know, the guys who were at the door, they turned me away. They're like, oh, yeah, we're not doing it. And so um, being a daydreamer, that wasn't acceptable. I was in the parking lot going, I don't want to go to jail, <laughs> but I'm not going home. I told my wife I was getting in this internship. So I was trying to figure out how do I get past these two knuckleheads who just wrote me off. Mm-hmm. And they'll say they didn't, but they wrote me off because I was a black guy. It's like, mm-hmm. what are you doing here? You know, and uh, they were surprised that I found the place. So I'm standing in the parking lot trying to think how I'm going to get back inside the studio. And my answer, who became another close friend and mentor, was walking up the driveway. She happened to be the coordinator and she had just left the writing class. And so within about seven minutes of the two of us chatting, I became her writing mentor. And the deal was she was going to get me into the internship. So <laughs> she marches me right back in there and they're like, oh, God, we can't say anything. You know, and and um, and so I got into the program and they were just like, so the, for the most part, in the beginning, they gave me a little bit of a hard time because they weren't very close. You know, my job was to make coffee for Bill Mesa, uh, get his paperwork. I shredded papers and and ran errands. And um, I helped build their, uh, their their theater. They had like a little movie theater in the studio. I helped build that. And I just did things and said not much of anything unless they talked to me. And so after a while, when they realized that I was a dude that was really sticking in there and going through it and learning everything, um, one of the guys goes, geez, Brian, he says, this is a trip. You're like the first black guy that got into the studio here. Hmm. And I'm just making the coffee and I'm just like, I said, I wonder why, you know, I said, you guys were so cold. I didn't tell them this, but I was like, you guys were so cold to me. Um, it's amazing that nobody black ever has gotten in there. So I opened the door for some Latinos and some other folks to get in because we needed more interns. And so um, the coordinator put me in charge of kind of like sitting down with them and interviewing them. And my job was to kind of find out who was really into visual effects. It's an art form. And uh, I was trying to find people who were really creative and who would bring something really special to the table on that team. Because there really were some, there's award-winning visual effects artists where I was. So I was, I was swimming in the ocean with like the big, big fish. Cause I, I was just learning it. And some of them had a hard time with the fact that I didn't really go to school for this, but black students don't know about this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have anyone to tell me, this is the kind of class you need to take if you're gonna be a visual effects artist. It wasn't anything like that. You know, um, my counselor thought I was just a pothead. He never really got to know me. I said, I wasn't a pothead. I said, but he would always make these jokes when I was trying to figure my path out So my path ended up taking a lot longer because some people didn't know how to tell me to end up where I was. You know, they were just like, well, just take some art classes and get a degree. And I was in line to get a degree in fine art until one of my mentors told me, what are you going to do with that? You're going to be in a gallery? I was like, no. And he goes, well, why do you want a degree in fine art? Where are you going to take it? So um, getting into Flash Filmworks opened up a lot of doors because the nice thing about internships is after the internship is like in its midpoint, they get a film in. And when they get a film in, you get to work on that film. So it accomplishes two things. Um, as a starting out visual effects artist, it takes care of that whole crap about experience. You know, people go, well, what have you worked on? You know, they know that you need to come through the pipeline somewhere and intern somewhere to get that first job and learn what your first duties are as, an, as a visual effects artist. And uh, working for, for Flash was amazing because I had already been prepared for the stuff that we were doing. You know, I was doing the rotoscoping and, and doing the real basic stuff, skin fixes. 
And when I left there, all I had to do was tell other studios, oh, I was working at Flash Filmworks. I had a job. I always had a job somewhere, working in commercials, working on other films, working on other projects. And it was really, really, really fun. And I was really getting carried away with it until I realized I'm getting away from what I got in entertainment for. Because mm-hmm. you know, one guy was just like, I was at one point, I was the oldest visual effects artist at this one place. And everybody would borrow my hard drive to listen to my music. And they realized I had music that went all the way back into the 70s. And it's like, what the heck do you have on here? And I was like, so you know who Led Zeppelin is? You know, you don't know who Van Halen is. And it was so funny. Um, they're, they're getting music off my drive to listen to. And then I'm looking at all these different cats I'm working around. I'm going, I said, I've been doing visual effects too long. I said, I got to start getting back into my purpose. Mm-hmm. And um, I started lining myself up to start my production company. And um, some of my mentors were telling me too, it's like, hey man, when are you going to start your production company and get cranking? And um, uh, at that time, I had the money to do it. I started Fireboy Entertainment in 2015, you know, and, and when I started, I really put everything into it. You know, I, I spent the money for an advisor and it ended up being a lot of money because they had to teach me how to build corporate credit, um, you know, from A to Z. It was, it was like going back to school and we set up our webpage. I had to learn how to go and build a, an identity on Twitter and on all the pertinent channels and that was just like, I realized how hard it is to run a whole company because you need people to do all those things. And yet it's just me and my wife doing stuff, you know, working as a team. And, um, but I ended up where I am, you know, it was, it, it, I was riding a lot of waves, but the irony is I ended up exactly where I'm supposed to be. And I love, I love what I'm doing. You know, I love being in the trenches. I love writing stories. I love doing the research. I love working with other film folks. Uh, I love being on a set. It's um, it's a lifestyle, I think, you know? Your tenacity certainly paid off. What are the roles of a content creator? Well, we it, it's, it's just like being a producer. I mean, it, content creator is another fancy way of saying producer because you're doing almost the same thing, except uh, I don't know if a lot of content creators take the paths that I do, like attaching talent they kind of uh, contain themselves to the project itself, um, uh, developing the characters and in, in the, in the entire vehicle, you know, whereas the producer is the one who goes out and, and gets those other attributes in place. They start setting up meetings. They find the money people that you're gonna need to, to take your, your idea you have in your head and further develop it. Um, and what we do is we do a little bit of everything. You know, we, we, we do all of those things and I go out and I get the talent myself, you know, because um, what you'll find is that everybody doesn't work the same way. If you get with an agency, you're getting with an agency that's probably got hundreds of clients and you're just an ant, an anthill. And at my age, I can't afford to have someone go, I'm going to represent you. And then they're moving at a snail's pace. I don't have that time. I mean, I had a manager and, um, I was doing more than he was. So I was going, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pay you all of this and, and you're not moving as fast as I am. And I said, hey, I don't fault you. But I kind of told him before we, we, we teamed up, I said, I don't waste any time. I'm in a lot of meetings, I'm trying to get things done and I need help. And uh, he's like, I think I can help you. And, um, and it didn't work out. So I, it's back to me doing it my way, setting the meetings up and hoping you know that whoever else I end up with, um, can actually take the reins and move things at a really reasonable pace. Because um, if you look at some of these, these streamers, man, they've got content set up, you know, they've, they've got enough content to go into the next year and then the next year you want to get into their groove. You want to get into their slate because even if you do get something now, we may not see it for a year or two hmm. and uh, you can't eat like that. You know, you'll get a little bit of money out of it. Um, but you're going to be waiting to, to really fulfill all of the, the financial goals and rewards of this particular project till the film comes out and the world gets to see it. So um, there's a little bit of a difference uh, of, of how the content creators and producers work, but um, I see myself being a, a little bit of both and I'm, and I'm glad because we get things done. You know, we get, you things, get done. things done. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, 
what are the the qualities that a content creator needs to have in order to, in order to be successful? I think they have to have drive, man. You have to have drive. You have to have creativity. You have to have discipline. You know, getting up. Mommy's not holding your hand. You got to get up in the morning, early in the morning, have your coffee, and get on the phone and get to work. You know, setting things in place. Uh, that discipline. You have to be able to teach it sometimes. You're working with multiple artists. I remember when I had an artist doing a, um, a Ashcan comic for me. Um, he was kind of a pothead, and it was a lot of work to get him to do things. I mean, I had to make him redraw stuff, and I'm going, gosh, I said, I'm paying this guy, and I have to pay him to redraw stuff that he really should have nailed after the first initial creative meeting. And then I found a guy who's an amazing artist who I didn't have to struggle with. Uh, he and I were very similar. Um, and you have to learn how to work with people, learn how to build a team, because you can't do it all. You know, my wife always tells me, well, why don't you draw it? I said, because I was up all night writing. Mm -hmm. I said, I can't wear my writing hat and then jump into my art hat. You, you would drive yourself crazy. And then it takes a lot of the fun out of it when you get stressed out that, you know, you have a week to get something done and then you're using every single second because you're trying to wear three hats. Mm -hmm. um, I go through a mental preparation, you know, after we get a show ready to start pitching, I go through mental preparation to tell people everything that they may ask. Um, I learned all that stuff from my acting classes. You know, mm -hmm. I learned how to be able to have an answer for producers and other people when they, when they want you to pitch something um, I'm ready for them, you know, and I, and I learned that in my acting class and, um, and you have to do those things with the talent that you talk to when you're actually, um, putting content together, you have to wear multiple hats and, um, uh, you can't just be a one trick pony, um, because I think it'll show in what you're doing if you are, you mm -hmm. know, and you need a good team. You really do need a good team because I'm not doing it all by myself anymore. I have a great team of guys. Uh, my art director is a guy that I used to, to break dance with back in high school. And uh, he and I would, would go into talent searches and, and competitions and win money and skedaddle out of town because, you know, sometimes the guys would be mad. And now that's the same guy who is developing my pitch decks um, and uh, everything that has to do with visual stuff. Uh, my guy Lee handles that. It's got, he did our webpage, phenomenal talent. Yes, I know how to do web pages, but too much, you know, <laughs> just, you know, I can tell him what I need and he knocks it out. And it's just like, oh, gosh, I can't wait to we're on another big show. And then I can bring some more people on board and um, and have this kind of a flow. So you really need to have a good team and uh, some experience to run the team. You know, uh, you we touched on it a little bit, I think, at the very opening uh, about the platform that you've produced content for. Um, I don't know if you want to expound on that, but I'm also curious, can someone come to you, like let's say uh, uh, Kellogg's or some company or something comes to you and wants you to produce content to give them uh, uh, more visibility on the, on the web. Are, are those things that you do too? And, and what are all the different platforms that you have or can produce content for? We can, we can produce content for any platform. My first directing um, assignment was a uh, Skittles commercial. <clears throat> and it was so fun. I worked with an award-winning editor that was on my team. And what we did was he shot a commercial. And then we worked. Uh, we did visual effects on his commercial and, and sat down through the conceptualizing stage. And then um, it came out so nice. It's like, wow. I said, okay. So when it was my turn to get a chance to do this commercial, um, I went from A to Z, you know, sitting in a coffee shop, coming up with content. And that's, that's what our company does. We sit out and conceptualize story. Uh, we go through a lot. We get the artwork. We get it all together. And um, the fun thing was the kid that was going to be in the commercial I was directing, uh, she got sick. And we had already booked the location. We're headed over to the place. And so my daughter, uh, I have two daughters. One of them was just like, dad, I can do it. <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> I know my daughter, you know, every parent loves their kids, you know, 
But I happen to personally know that my daughter was uh, like me. She's a daydreamer. She had an outrageous vocabulary and could read like on a high school level when she was like in the third and fourth grade. So uh, I told her mom, I said, you know, I'm going to put Kiara in this commercial. And she's like, oh, my God, are you sure? And I said, you know, what? I think she can do it. You know, and I talked to her and uh, the editor who was the producer, he was just like, this is a bad idea, dude. Kids are hard to work with. And I said, you don't know my daughter. And he's How like, old was she at this time? What's that? How old was she at that point? She was like seven. And she hadn't had any acting classes. So, um, but she'd been around daddy. And um, I used to make him slate. You know, I would make him slate. My name is Kiara Fire and da-da-da. And so I would do those little things with him just for fun, not to put pressure on him like they were going to go and act because uh, we were discussing it. And so she dove in, man. She was fearless. She just dove in. She said, Dad, I'll do it. And, uh, and so I gave her the script. You know, and it was late, too. We started late, too, because I could only get the location in the evening. It was a really nice home. And um, they got in there. They lit the place. They were ready to go. And then I'm sitting in the bathroom with my daughter and prepping her. And I told her, I said, memorize all your lines. And I said, then all you have to work is on, you know, what you're doing on the camera, your function. I said, just memorize all your lines. Smile a lot. It's a commercial. And I said, you know, and, and it'll be easy for you. So she sat in there when I went in to let everybody know what was going on. I did her makeup, something I picked up being in theater and, and everything. And my other daughter ended up being in the commercial too. And so what happened was she came out of the bathroom, man, and, and she was working with this guy who could act, who, who'd been around for a while. And she turned it out. It was, um, and we got done fast. I mean, we, we did a couple takes and she nailed it. Every take was really good. So when we sit down to edit, um, my buddy's just like, God, dude, he says, why isn't she working? I said, you know, um, we're proceeding very cautiously with our daughter with acting, but um, she was she was right on the money, man. It was amazing. So um, I have to give my kids some credit. I directed it, but um, it was a pleasure to watch her work. <laughs> it was a pleasure to watch her work with another professional. The guy's like, where's she taking acting class? I said, with daddy. <laughs> so from that point, point forward, was she hooked? Uh, like, uh, did she continue to, to to pursue acting or did she start to pursue acting from that point? Because your daughters, aren't they both now like 18, at least yeah, like somewhere they're, around? They're adults. She's, uh, my daughter's a gamer and she's making money gaming and, hmm. um, and she's taking classes in college and, and uh, both of my kids have multiple talents. They're both musicians. They both sing well. Uh, they know how to do animation. They know how to do graphics. Mm. Um, and they're both really, really good gamers. And you know, it's funny. I've always been a gamer. Since the Magnavox came out, I always have video games in my life. It's my creative getaway. And um, uh, now my son, he's making money playing video games and he's finishing his degree there was a time when I never would have imagined anything like this. You know, why weren't there money when I was playing video games? You know, I was really good. Right, exactly. I ended up getting into video game. How did that become so profitable? Is it because of sponsors and advertisers and stuff like that got involved? It's all together, man. I mean, uh, this 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 platform online has created so many places where you can make money. My dad would roll over his grave if he could see all the things that an artist can do. I mean. Game development isn't what it used to be. You know, when I was doing game development, it was just a small studio, no more than 12 guys in it. And um, two of those guys would be the programmers. Four of those guys would be the artists. And they were the type of artists that could do almost everything. Sketch, put the sketch, scan the sketches, bring them in the computer, turn them into a 3D object that's going to actually be a 2D object and create the backgrounds and now, and nowadays, um, if you look at the whole crew on a video game, it's just as large as a film. Hmm. There's like hundreds of people working on games like Grand Theft Auto. It's like a film production, man. You have pitch, you have a, like a pitch deck, you have storyboards, you've got scripts and all these characters. And um, we never had a, a platform where you could go and game and then there's a lot of people out there that love watching your game and they pay, you know, it's almost like going to the movie theater to watch someone play video games. And that's kind of what's happening with my son. He, he plays um, two or three different games. He has a, a TikTok and a discord account 
and they've monetized those. So he's making a couple grand a month. Uh, he's making a, like, making a side career uh, gaming. Hmm. And, and then they also have these gaming tournaments. You know, back in the day, the gaming tournaments were like a hundred bucks. They have just had a gaming tournament in Vegas um, for one of these mixed martial art games. And the grand prize was something like 10 or 15 grand. You know, my son took seventh place out of all of these guys that play these games from around the world. And um, I was just like, wow, you went to Vegas to be in a gaming competition. I, I thought that was just so cool. Hmm. And uh, so I don't tell my kids what to do. I know that they're creative people. I just try to steer them. You know, it's like, if you want to do this, here's an idea. Take this path, you know, because my son, my son was a skateboarder. Uh, initially, I bought him a Strat, a guitar, because I wanted to play guitar with me. I play guitar and keyboards. And so I wanted my son to play with me. You know, so I want to play music with my son. And then he he kind of gravitated toward the to the uh, skateboard. So my wife was was outraged. She's like, oh, God, no skateboarding. He's going to get hurt and da 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 And he's a good-looking kid. He's going to have scars. And I said, you know what? You can't discourage a child because it'll make him want to do it even more. So I told my son, I said, if you do well in school, um, I got you on the skateboarding and let's see, let's see what you can do. And um, skateboarding took him on an interesting ride because he was skateboarding for like 10 and 12 hours a day. And I took my wife to watch him and it reminded me of me, like when I'm writing or I'm, when I'm doing visual effects, you're sitting down for 10, 12, 14, 16 hours putting time into what you're doing and you can't do anything in life unless you put really good quality time um, developing that skill. And then when he started getting really good, I was just like, wow, I said, he might end up really doing something. I was like, we didn't do those kind of tricks on the skateboard. You know, we were growing up. So uh, he ends up modeling for this, this active, this sports company in New York and they would give him free gear and give him money. And I was telling Khalil, I was like, man, I said, you've really, it, it reminded me of me when I had to show my dad I could go and turn my art into money when I got my first job in uh, video game development. And uh, here my son is, he's out here skating, kicking butt, training for hours, and then these people taking pictures of him, he's on the website. And, um, and he took all of my advice and I told him, I said, you know, boxers and athletes, they all have to have something to fall back on uh, I told him about this documentary that I watched that was about the linemen in football and what happens to them after football. And it's so weird. I'm up late one night and I happened to see this and it moved me because we love watching stuff. You know, we love watching athletes do their thing, but we don't really take the time to think what happens to them after they're not doing that. And this, this particular documentary was really gut-wrenching because some of these guys are on medication They've got really bad knees. You know, there's no glory. No one talks about them after they're off the field. And, uh, and I just put all of that that I was feeling watching this documentary to my son. I said, hey, I said, skateboarding is extreme. I said, you're going you're gonna to get injured. I said, and you're going to have to allow yourself time to heal. I learned that too from ballet because ballet, you get injured doing dance. And, um, and my son believed me, but he had to be in the moment to see it. And he had been injured a lot. So what he ended up doing was follow my lead. He looked at school and decided uh, he found something that he liked. And so he got into radiology. So he wants to be a radiologist. And he's got, he's got to complete two more classes and uh, he's got his degree. So I was really excited to see that he didn't spend a lot of time talking about school with us. He just went and did it. That's how I did stuff. Hmm. So, um, I'm my son's hero, just like I was my dad. dad my dad was my hero. And it's kind of cool because I never saw it coming, you know. Hmm. And uh, it moved me to tears. I would go to school and talk to his teachers. And his teachers were like, we really love your son. He's such a positive kid. He sits in front of the class. He's picking my brain. It's just I'm not used to this. And I'm just thinking, damn, my son never said anything. Um, he never said anything about school. Hmm. And here he is really, really follow my lead. It's really exciting for him to teach me something, you know, like I'm making money online. <laughs> I'm doing what? Gaming. Yeah. Yeah. Really? He's like, yeah. And then when I saw the receipts, I was like, oh my gosh, I was like, this is crazy, but it's cool. You know, we're in a different time. Yeah, absolutely. You can make a living doing something you enjoy. You are a blessed person. Um, backtracking a little bit, 
Uh, yeah. Talking about gaming, they do use actors too, correct? Like for voiceovers, the voiceovers? They sure do. Is, is, are unions involved in that? Or is SAG and AFTRA involved in the gaming industry? I believe it is now, but when it started, it wasn't. I did some voiceovers. I've done voiceovers when I was doing visual effects, you know, because we um, sometimes you get uh, work that calls for it. And they have such a nice system set up. You know, there's, there's a voice talent all over the world who have their microphones set up. They'll do a scratch track and the producers listen to their voice and, and see if they like them. And then they shoot them the script and then they go back and forth. And when you do it, you have a really good setup in your, in your home studio, they take that tra track and have their editor sweeten it and then you're in business. And so, yeah, now I believe there's a lot more folks who, who have, um, that are SAG or, or, or AFTRA or whatever that are doing it because it's become such a tremendous, it's, it's a huge industry now, you know, it's really, really big. And it didn't start off that way. Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Potch, cause I'm not Julia's son, not anymore. Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Potch. Cause I'm not Julia's son like I was before